Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Bear with me, it's long. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of God. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute and unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. The word of God for the people of God. After hearing that text, it's always tempting just to get up and silently motion and then sit down. It might be a shorter service if I did that. 
But I do love it when a theme comes together. And so, Karen, even acknowledging the weariness of a long reading is so appropriate today. And I don't know if you saw it, but I think I saw some pretty tired eyes on little Judson as he was being uh, carried around the sanctuary. There's a joke in my household that started several years ago when Mia was just a tiny little thing. It must have been in the toddler years when she started to pick up on the fact that our evening conversations at home would eventually meander to the topic of bedtime, whether she was ready or not. As parents do, Justin and I would notice behaviors and moods, the ways that the circles beneath her eyes would just begin to get rather heavy as that witching hour approached. And we would try to find some, you know, secret ways to discuss this without upsetting the tired toddler. But as most children eventually do, Mia began to pick up on our pattern and eventually broke into those formerly adult conversations, asserting her own opinion on the matter. I'm not tired, she would say, though she wholeheartedly believed it. We knew another truth. Her eyes were tired. I believe we even have video evidence on one of our phones. I'm not sure who captured it, but there was a night when Mia was sitting on the sofa with us and her eyes were growing so heavy, they were almost closed. You all know what I'm talking about. One of us looked at her and said, look, look, she's got, those are tired eyes. Well, she heard us. And the words were just enough to jar her back awake, providing the necessary energy to open her eyes as wide as they possibly could be, just in time for her to say, I'm not tired. (laughs) The video went viral in our family group texts. And now anytime anyone in the family starts to act grouchy or moody, We're tired. Or anytime someone starts to fall asleep on the sofa when we're not quite ready yet, one will look over and say, Aw, are those tired eyes? To which someone else in the house will say, I'm not tired. It's a joke, for sure. We have had numerous laughs about it, but as is often the case with a good joke, beneath the humor lies a kernel of profound truth. To admit that we are tired, that we need rest, that it's time to wrap up the work and the excitement of the day is a surrender of sorts. It is for us to succumb to our own mortality, to admit that we too need rest. It is to acknowledge our humanity, our weakness, and our vulnerability. But could it also be that to acknowledge our weariness is the first step toward discovering joy? As we read the gospel selection for this morning, we quickly realize that the world into which the good news is born is indeed a weary and saturated world. 
We can relate to how Luke's audience must have felt, overwhelmed with news, stories about this Jesus figure, who he was, what he did and said, and what it all meant. Luke's words read, just like the news we consume day after day. Listen to them. Since many have already written an orderly account, I too have decided to report the story after investigating everything carefully from the beginning. In other words, yeah, I know y'all have read the other reports. You've got a gist of what happened, but here are the real facts. No need to look any further. I've already done the homework for you. This is not fake news. This is real news. This is true news. This is well-documented, researched news. This, my friends, is good news, Luke writes. And because these lines are so familiar in our own, overly saturated with news culture, we might also begin to understand the level of fatigue that this assertion elicits from the population. Can we really trust it? How do we know this news is different than the other news? Do we even have capacity to receive any more news, to hear anything new, or should we just shut it out altogether and carry on with life? Luke's version of the news begins with a priest and his wife, their names, of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as far as Luke is concerned, they are good people. They are righteous people, blameless in the eyes of the law, Luke says. It also cannot go unmentioned that they are priestly people, both of them, not by choice, as a modern reader might assume, but by DNA. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth come from priestly tribes. Elizabeth's was the most impressive of all, from the tribe of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Remember him? So it definitely makes sense that these two are described right at the outset as righteous and blameless and holy. But what doesn't make sense, what perhaps is a little more surprising, is the way that things seem to not go their way. You see, this devoted couple was struggling with infertility. They were getting on in years, as the text says, and had not been able to have children. In a world where fertility was a sign of God's favor, the skeptics must have wondered why these two didn't have a full house. Maybe they themselves began to wonder Had they missed the mark somewhere along the way? Had they accidentally done something wrong or angered God without meaning to? Or maybe yet, they were just tired. Tired of waiting. Tired of working hard to do all the right things. Tired of showing up and being priestly and righteous and blameless. Tired of wondering if they had built their lives not on the good news, but on the wrong news. Tired of wanting a child and a purpose and a legacy, a mark to leave in this world. One that would carry on their name, their story, their family into a future that they would not live to see. Maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth were flat-out weary. That could potentially explain Zechariah's disbelief as the angel delivered the good news. After all, we know a little something about getting our hopes up, right? 
We know a little something about getting our hopes up only to have them crushed by disappointment when things don't work out as plans, when dreams fail to become reality. We know how painful it is to deal with that kind of loss, and we know how much strength it takes to summon the courage to dream again with the aftertaste of failure and disappointment still marinating on our tongues. How can joy possibly arrive in moments like these? How can our weary world, our weary church, even our weary selves rejoice? Well, lucky for us, there are many who claim to have some answers to that question. There are plenty of self-help, book, self-help books. They offer their tried and true formulas toward happiness and satisfaction. There's a whole slew of life coaches who offer their advice on how we might rearrange our calendars or our closets to create space for joy and the things that are certain to bring it. But what all these coaches and authors miss is that joy at least for those of us who believe in God, joy is not an emotion. It is not a human reaction to a pleasant set of circumstances. Rather, joy is a gift. It is a gift of the Spirit that graces our lives even when we least expect it. Joy, like grace, is the result of being loved by God. It is a gift that no one can experience or no one can steal from us. It is ours to claim. It is ours to enjoy and ours to share with others as we rejoice. Joy is a gift, not an emotion. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann describes joy as a gift that results from being truly and deeply loved. He uses a German word that I won't pretend to be able to pronounce this morning, and it doesn't translate super well, but it, it essentially means beheldness. Did you hear that? Beheldness. To be beheld is to experience joy, Moltmann says. And he says to be beheld essentially means to be loved. And to be loved not because of anything we did to deserve that love, but because we are, not because we're particularly good or righteous or blameless like Elizabeth and Zechariah, but to be beheld is to be loved because we simply are. To be beheld is to be loved because we simply exist, because God made us. But how can anyone, even those of us who know that we are beheld and we are beloved, how can any of us rejoice in this world which is so broken and so violent and so divided, so angry, so opinionated, so desperate, so fearful, so weary? How can any of us rejoice at all? Isn't it naive a bit? Maybe even irresponsible to seek joy, much less to discover it and receive it and proclaim it in our world in the midst of such great suffering and pain. Well, some folks might say that it is. But others, like Trisha Hersey, say that it is precisely what we have to do. 
We must experience joy. We must receive it for the gift that it is, and we must bravely proclaim it as an act of resistance against all the forces that are trying to take it away. It is precisely in our world, which is so full of violence and division and anger and poverty and desperation, that joy must persist because joy is a gift from God, and God is still giving despite our best efforts to snuff God out. God still is, and therefore joy still is. American poet Ross Gay researches joy and has published a collection of essays on it. In this collection, he comes to the conclusion that joy is related to our very survival. Joy is related to our survival. Here's a glimpse at how he came to that conclusion. And I'm going to quote his words because, you know, poets are particular about their words. What if joy is not separate from pain, he writes. What if joy and pain are fundamentally tangled up with one another? Or even more to the point, what if joy is not only entangled with pain or suffering or sorrow, but is also what emerges from how we care for each other through those things? What if joy, instead of refuge or relief from heartbreak, is what effloresces from us as we help each other carry our heartbreaks? Which is to say... What if joy needs sorrow? He continues, My hunch is that joy is an ember for, or precursor to, wild and unpredictable and transgressive and unboundaried solidarity. And that that solidarity might incite further and further joy, which might incite further solidarity, and so on, and so on. My hunch is that joy emerging from our common sorrow, which does not necessarily mean we have the same sorrows, but that we in common sorrow might draw us together. It might depolarize us, he writes. It might de-atomize us enough that we can consider what in common we love. And though attending to what we hate in common is too often all the rage, and happens to be very big business, noticing what we love in common and studying that might help us survive. That is why I think joy, which gets us to love, is a practice of survival. Wow. And even though we may hear those words, recognize them for the beautiful truth that they hold, the reality is sometimes joy doesn't feel within reach. Like Zechariah, whose disbelief initially got in the way of joy, we struggle to imagine a joyful world and a joy-filled life. But if I might offer us a little spoiler If we stay with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth just nine more months and a few more verses in Luke's long gospel, we will discover that before too long, 
Zechariah's weary silence becomes a joyful song, a response to the gift of God who is already at work long before Zechariah even imagined it could be possible. Friends, here on this first Sunday of Advent, though we may confess to our weariness, Though we may feel overwhelmed by the bad news, the troubling news, the confusing news, the fear-mongering news, we are invited to receive the good news and to hold out hope that joy is still possible. But it's more than that, really. It's more than that because we are called to proclaim with our words and our lives that joy is already present already here because joy is a gift from God and God is here with us now. Maybe we can't see it. Maybe we can't see it because we're too tired or maybe we're a bit jaded or wounded by the pain and the sorrows of this world and joy seems just impossible to find. Or maybe we've started to believe that the pursuit of joy or the the hope for joy is naive or irresponsible in this world. But maybe, just maybe, if we begin by confessing to our weariness, which really is just being honest about our own humanity rather than running around like toddlers pretending we aren't tired. Like toddlers pretending that somehow we, unlike everyone else, are superhuman. We can stay awake throughout the whole night without any consequences when the dawn breaks through. And so maybe if we want to rejoice, even in the midst of our sorrow, we have to first admit that we're tired, that we're weary, that we are merely human, but that in our human state itself, precisely there, We are loved and held by God. We are beloved. We are beheld. And as we wake up to that precious reality, perhaps we might find that somehow, in some way, even in this weary world, joy abounds. Amen.